consumerism is not citizenship. So when did consumerism take over? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. I remember film strips in my 1950s elementary school idealizing the proliferation of smokestacks across America. They were a symbol of progress. Of course, now we see them as polluters degrading the right of the public to clean air. In the 2020s, we see that unbridled muscular growth uh, in consumption yields huge islands of plastic trash floating and causing destruction of sea life in all the Earth's oceans. In both cases, any negative effects of full steam ahead were never even thought of. Unlimited, unrestrained market forces would be all we needed for a bright future with greater and greater percentages of our population able to share in the bounty. Consumerism has largely replaced the notion of citizenship America's founders insisted was crucial to the life of a republic. Our government was to serve the common good. It was never intended to be limited to being in blatant service to all aspects of consumerism. And today, we are paying a huge price for that. But it goes on. The gross domestic product has become the only measure of our economic health. The dependence on strong Christmas sales seems to be the only thing that counts. But aside from the physical pollution, what is the impact on any sense of community? human relations. Our guest today raised this crucial question in an essay on the History News Network, Why Americans Buy So Much Stuff. A recent book by our guest, Elizabeth Cohen, is A Consumer's Republic, The Politics of Mass Consumption in Post-War America. Thank you so much for being with us, Elizabeth Cohen, on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, and I will say, no relation that we know of. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Elizabeth Cohen is the Howard Mumford Jones Professor of American Studies in the Department of History at Harvard University. She received her PhD from the University of California at Berkeley, an interesting place, and has taught at Carnegie Mellon and New York universities. She's the author of Making a New Deal, Industrial Workers in Chicago, 1919 to 39 and A Consumer's Republic, The Politics of Mass Consumption in Post-War America, and most recently, Saving America's Cities, Ed Logue, and the Struggle to Renew Urban America in the Suburban Age. Interesting stuff. While this COVID pandemic has been an unwelcome shock to the system, in its frightening beginning after a rush to hoard essentials, much of the economy just shut down. Impulsive spending came to a virtual standstill. COVID became a new frame for seeing what had become of us. Perhaps, maybe, it better enabled us to see what our guest has written about. The polit- she says, quote, the political and social impact of the flourishing of mass consumption in 20th century America. That's what we're looking at today. The title of your book specifies post-war America 
as a pivotal point. What of the 1930s economic realities and the massive spending on war production contributed to a new determination to ensure a prosperous peacetime? A little bit of historical context there. Yes, well, um, first I should say that um, this notion of a consumer's republic, which um, I say is kind of the reigning principle of our post-war economic uh, reality is a term that I invented. Um, so it was not how people talked about their right. their goals and ambitions for the post-war period, but uh-huh. I felt like it was a it's a shorthand for what I saw as a consensus that emerged um, after World War II that the the best route to a widespread prosperity for Americans would be through mass consumption. And that comes out of 15 years of struggle. First, a Great Depression mm-hmm. during the 1980s, which um, almost everybody was affected by. And then a sort of partial climbing out of that depression through wartime uh, home front preparation. So, you know, there was a kind of uh, return to more prosperity of those who were still on the home front through fuller employment, um, more earnings, savings, because in fact, there were real limitations to what people consume. But even during the war, uh, there were people in the labor movement, in government, in business, thinking about how this um, return to prosperity might be orchestrated after uh, the war was over. And it became quite clear to them that the best solution would be a reverting from producing munitions and armaments and tanks and planes to producing appliances and cars and uh, homes and sort of the, 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 the material goods Um, of a prosperous uh, society. And so this notion of promoting consumption as a strategy of benefiting everybody really took over. Um, And even in the war, there are hints, advertisements from companies like GE that, you know, after the war, you can look forward to your own home, to your own car, to a washer, to a refrigerator. And so that that became the terms of, of what people came to expect with a return to peacetime. So it's certainly things changed. The, you know, the depression set it off, and that was, of course, only ended by the massive spending in the Second World War. And then, but but before the war, it was one thing. After the war, it was something else. I mean, consumerism was not a value in my parents' parents' generation of Americans. Personal indulgences were not at all a traditional value. The transition from valuing savings to massive consumption is certainly worth discussing and examining. From today's vantage point, the embrace of consumerism overall seems it seems hard to believe that encouraging a mass consumer economy required, as you say, extensive efforts to cooperate. Tell us about that, please. How is it sold as a civic responsibility? Well, you know, it, it is. Uh, it's interesting that. Uh, people who are finally uh, getting their feet back on the ground and um, 
earning again and savings because they were not really able to buy so much during the war, um, came out of the war a little bit hesitant about embracing this notion of what I call a consumer's republic, um, you know, cherishing those savings a bit. And so it took really encouraging people to um, to see that buying was actually not just about themselves, but really about what was going to be good for the society. Um, that 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 became a necessity. Now, I would say that even today, there's still a contradiction um, between our appreciation for people consuming and our, uh, you know, valuing of savings. You know, we'll often lament that Americans don't save enough. When we when we compare ourselves to other societies, there'll be a concern that we're not saving enough. At the same time, we're also saying people have to you know, buy in order to keep the economy, um, you know, um, moving. Um, I do think there's a difference, though, between today and what the situation was like in the late 1940s that's important for us to recognize. And that is that it was a kind of closed circle after the war in that when you bought something, you were actually creating a job for an American worker. Um, So the concept was, and there were, uh, in my book, I actually have some wonderful graphics that show this as they were published in books by policymakers, um, magazines and newspapers that labor unions put out. But the assumption was that when you bought something, that was going to, um, to actually... Uh, immediately have an impact in American production, which would lead to the employing a worker who would then have money in his or her pocket to spend, which would then keep the whole cycle going. So that was really, you know, a, 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 a cycle that was built on, you know, home production, uh, which is what yeah. our, the situation was pretty much before global capitalism and offshore production really started to take off in the 1970s and 1980s. So today, when you shop uh, and you buy something, it's very likely that it was produced in Asia, in South America, in Africa, and not in the United States. So we have a greater separation today between production and consumption. So at the time, it really wasn't... Uh, a far-fetched notion that consuming goods was not just going to be a benefit to you, but to the larger society. Definitely, and and it, the country was buzzing. I mean, Detroit, when I grew up, you know, basically you knew all cars were American. You are creating American jobs. And as you were talking, I was reminded of uh, after 9-11, one of the first things that then-President George Bush said, what you know, for what Americans should do, Go to the malls, spend money, you know, and right. and and now the reality is that a lot of people, you know, just live paycheck to paycheck. They haven't been able to save, and many people, if they have a medical emergency, uh, the, the money isn't there. Savings is far less valued than it was in early times. I wonder if that's the case with other Western industrialized countries. Are they? <laughs> Consumer Republic, Consumers Republic as well, or do they save more, do you think? Well, okay, save that for a sec. I, I want to just go back to the um, 
notion of savings versus spending. Um, I mean, to some extent today, it does create sales jobs and uh, yeah. you know, trucking jobs. And it's not like there are no jobs created when people consume. But I would say we even go beyond uh, just being torn between savings and spending. In fact, I think there's a great encouragement to go into debt because it's yes. only you get a good credit rating today mm -hmm. is if you borrow and then repay. So in many ways, the system is set up for you to overspend. In terms of other countries, that's a pretty big legislation uh, yeah. you know, to make. I think there are differences. There are higher saving rates in some countries than others. The, uh, the Consumers Republic concept has certainly spread throughout the world. Mm. So it's like the United States is the only place today where, um, you know, mass consumption is considered crucial to the economy. But we're probably, um, you know, there more than, say, a country like France, where I think savings rates are higher. The other thing is that many Western democracies like France, to use that as an example, are providing more public goods. So people are not paying out of their own pockets, for example, uh -huh. for men or uh, higher education. Um, for many of the things that we pay for on a privatized basis, they are getting as taxpayers in their society. So that maybe they save less, um, maybe they uh, pay higher taxes, but they're also getting more in return. Yeah, and the idea, I mean, this is something that bugs me and a lot of people that, that healthcare is a commodity. You know, it's not a right, and it just, uh, it, it ain't right. It, it's just not right, in my opinion. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are on Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking with Elizabeth Cohen, Harvard professor, uh, Department of History, on why Americans buy so much stuff, talking about uh, her notion of a consumer's republic. And, and you write that for its promoters, this mass consumption-driven economy held out the promise of political as well as economic democracy, end of quote. Today, <laughs> that sentiment seems really naive. It seems that the reverse has resulted, but there appears to have been some idealism back then. And in that, you, you observed that Americans lived better and on a more equal footing with their neighbors. It was expected the dream of a more egalitarian America would finally be achieved, end of quote. In what ways did they imagine that consumerism would lead to more equitable and democratic American society? And, and we are anything but economic democracy now. How, how did they think it was going to lead to a more equitable and democratic society? Well, there were a lot of um, things in place that aimed at kind of equalizing people's economic standing. Uh, on the one hand, we had a much more unionized workforce yes. who were getting better compensated. So there was this sense of a working class that was becoming middle class, homeowning, getting decent pay. In fact, you know, that it was very prominent that um, that we could have a one earner household where the man would, in fact, provide for the family. Uh, 
So there was a sense of, you know, working people would would be well compensated. And on the other end, we had a much more progressive tax structure right after Mm. World War II quite a while after, where, you know, higher earners were actually taxed at a much higher rate. Yes. So there are many um, dimensions to, you know, creating a more uh, egalitarian uh, America, you know, economically. Um, and there was also at the at the base, I think, a notion that it was not a trade off, but rather the strategy was that the pie would grow. So we weren't really redistributing wealth so much as creating a society that was prosperous and becoming more so all the time. Yeah, so that the old saying, a rising tide lifts all boats. I, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people uh, believe that, but it, it hasn't turned out to be the case. There are some amazing super yachts out there and uh, some people with no boats whatsoever to go on that. None whatsoever. Well, and I would say that some of the things I just pointed to have actually been in decline. So, you know, unions are in decline. So the bargaining position of workers has obviously decreased. Uh, The tax structure has become much more, uh, much less progressive, as we know, with tax cut after tax cut and benefits going to the upper end. Um, you know, we just talked about jobs um, disappearing, good paying jobs in manufacturing and so forth disappearing and going, um, you know, offshore. Uh, and many of those people instead working in lower paying service sector jobs. So many factors have contributed to that. Yeah. So there's a lot of obstacles to the realization of more economic equality that weren't there before the war and have continued for many, many decades. And again, after many decades of economic growth, the belief in the market being the best solution to everything, it still still amazes me that people do believe that. Just, oh, turn a free market loose. They, they, you know, medical care, everything will be fine. Just trust the, the uh, invisible hand of the market to, to fix everything. But when they now, go ahead, I, I about that, I mean, I, yeah. I actually think it's important to make a distinction between what you just described, which is a kind of neoliberal perspective right. that really started to take off in the late seventies and, and particularly in the nineteen eighties, and has continued, which is to actually uh, deregulate, privatize, um, uh, undermine. Uh, the the sort of public sector. Um, In these early decades, um, I don't think it was quite so stark a contrast. We're coming out of the New Deal and um, a growing expectation that there could be an American version of a welfare state and there should be some public goods and a robust public sector. Uh, During the 1930s, after all, we created Social Security, unemployment insurance, Um, you know, uh, fair labor standards, some things that the government was in a position to deliver. And, um, you know, that that did live on uh, for quite a a number of years. Um, On the other hand, we should also recognize that some of the impetus for those programs was by the late 1930s to create um, that mass consumer 
uh, reality, because if you gave people Social Security, they would actually be participants in the consumer economy. If you provided unemployment and you paid people somewhat better, they would be able to 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 sort of, you know, um, participate more. Yes. So, you know, there was there was certainly by it was Keynesianism really yes. uh, kicks in in the late 1930s. And there is a, a recognition that the way to sort of deliver prosperity is through a mass consumption society. We are starting to to in, enact uh, government policies that will support that. But I think it is crucial to make this distinction between the late 40s and the 50s and in many, and the 60s and what the, the world we're living in today, where, as you say, everything is expected to be solved by the private market. Yeah, interesting. That is a big change, 70s and 80s. I hadn't thought about that, but that's why we have this show, to learn stuff, and it's rather fun, in my opinion. And uh, I'll tell you, again, when I was growing up, we we trusted the government. I remember, you know, sitting down, I was a little kid, eating some uh, cereal, and uh, there was talk about uh, nuclear fallout from all this testing that was going on. And I remember my mother saying something like, if the, if it wasn't safe, that you know, the government wouldn't let it happen. You know, we can trust the government to make sure that the food is safe. Boy, how far we've come from that. What was the expected role of the government coming out of uh, World War II before the 70s and 80s? Well, I think that's a really crucial point. Um, and, you know, I think that there was a kind of trust yes. in government particularly at the federal level. The 30s and the New Deal was really a, a recalibrating of the way um, the American political culture, political economy, political structure would work. And um, this, the, the federal government did take over a lot of responsibilities that previously had either been in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, or on at the level of states and localities. Um, and so that confidence in the government uh, was crucial uh, to the you know the way the world worked for us in in those first decades of the post-war period. And I think today one of the biggest impotence, uh, sorry, obstacles um, to to actually bringing back uh, some of the strategies that I think would create more equality um, are one of the biggest obstacles is. The, the widespread distrust of government, um, because what it would take, and particularly in the realm, say, of the environment, where you began th this conversation, it would it's going to take regulation. Uh, it's going to take telling people what they can and can't do. And the, the government has to be in that role. And people's distrust of government is not going to help that. Interesting. So as you talk about it, I'm, uh, the widespread distrust of government is, is very convenient for the free marketers who don't want any regulations whatsoever, who want to go back uh, before Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and have no uh, uh, regulations whatsoever. That's so the, the widespread distrust of government is useful to those interests. I hadn't really thought about that. And uh, you know that's part of the kind of neoliberal turn. I think mm -hmm. is, um, you know, is is discrediting what government can do. And you know, this was not just a strategy on the part of the conservative right. Uh, there were ways in which 
democratic leaders contributed to it. Oh, yeah. So, for example, in the 1990s, when Clinton and Gore put together a what they called the per, performance report and how to improve government, I forget the exact title. Uh. Uh, they basically use the language of, you know, we, we need to make government more efficient. Uh, we need to make it more like the private sector, more like a business. You as a citizen should be getting, you know, your money's worth. Uh, you are a customer of government. I mean, using all of that language of the private market um, to judge the effectiveness of government. Yeah. Yeah, consumerism, uh, re replacing citizenship. It does seem to be uh, uh, the case in so many ways. And y you remind me of uh, moving up a few years in history in the early 2000s. New Hampshire, where the show is coming from, had a one-term governor, a very wealthy man named Craig Benson. One term. I was in the state senate at the time, and I thought it notable that he changed the name of the Office of Citizen Affairs to the Office of Consumer Affairs. It did change back when he got the boot from voters. But, but what do you make of the significance of that change? And that was early 2000s. It would be in yes. that same I was just describing where right. I, I it makes perfect sense. I think that he, from his perspective, um, that's what government did, yeah. was protect your you know, your rights and your uh, prosperity uh, as a consumer. Um, and that blurring of those lines, I think, has led us to some of the problems we have today. Wow. And we do have some opportunities, shall we say, going back 50 years or so to the 1950s. And as I remember, there was more and more stuff. Everybody was appliances, washing machines, dryers. I remember when my mother got her first non-ringer washer. It was a big deal. All these new, wonderful things in such high demand. I mean, cars change models every year. Nothing really changed, but it was just the image. Things that were in high demand did enable more leisure time and freedom from drudgery. That was the, the model. That's what people wanted. Less time at the you know ringer washer and more time being able to watch your new black and white TV. It was very profitable also for the military-industrial complex. And as you say, politicians never tired of tying Americans, America's political and economic superiority, superiority over the Soviet Union to its more democratic distribution of goods, end of quote. I remember the kitchen debate between Vice President Nixon and Premier Khrushchev. How did the Cold War relate to this rising tide of consumerism? Yeah, well, I think um, that the United States, you know, took advantage of its manufacturing prowess to promote the rewards that uh, non-aligned countries could have if they joined the capitalist democratic side. Um, and, in, you know, there was, it was, despite what Khrushchev uh, argued with Nixon, there was not the same kind of range of goods and availability of, of manufactured products in the Soviet Union. Uh, he would have been better off actually not to compete so much on those grounds with Nixon, I think, but to argue for the greater distribution of wealth and full employment and some of the benefits that people did have in the Soviet Union. Um, 
but you know as as it became harder and harder to wall off uh the eastern europe and and this you know soviet union and um that whole world from the plethora of material goods that the west was benefiting from we saw the impact that had on their survival so you know it was certainly a winning strategy to argue that people would live better under you know a, a capital in a capitalist society um it definitely played into the cold war and it wasn't just you know about um you know attracting more countries to our column uh, it was also about building markets for american goods so you know when um president kennedy talked about um you know uh, the fate the future of africa he wasn't just thinking about saying we've got more more african new african countries because this was a time of decolonization in our column but these are uh, emerging markets that we can sell our goods to so <clears throat> it was a complicated calculation yes and it, it certainly was and uh, i do find it interesting now that uh, africa is uh and they crosshair, well, not crosshairs, that's not right, but China is there big time developing Africa. And our former president, number 45, referred to Africa as not very attractive countries. I don't want to use the word he used, but, uh, yeah, sure. you know, it's just, but it's about a different kind of empire, it seems. You know, less, that didn't call it empire but having markets in South America and Africa and, and leading the world in that. And it did result in, frankly, a great deal of prosperity for America. Was it fairly distributed? That's up for debate, I, I think. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is uh, Elizabeth Cohen, who uh, has written an article on History News Network, uh, Why Americans Buy So Much Stuff. It relates to her book, uh, consumers, a Consumer's Republic, The Politics of Mass Consumption in Post-War America. And our, our founders, America's founders, and it's, it's so fascinating to me that people who are against what our founders are for are waving the American flag and calling themselves patriots. And, you know, they're real enemies of that stuff. But anyway, our founders, in fact, knew that democracy is not a spectator sport, that citizenship must be active. I mean, you're not really a citizen unless you take part in government. It's about self-government, and it does take effort. Meanwhile, consumerism, ah, it's so much easier. It takes no thought or effort. The far right, the Trumpist right, is actively working to dismantle democracy and replace it with religious nationalism, authoritarianism. Well, we now have what's left of a republic. How serious component a component of this whittling away of democracy is this total consumerism. You know, has, has it just taken over? And is that a big part of uh, what's going on here or what? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, you we're now talking about today, not the history that I was writing about uh, in, the, in the sort of second half of the 20th century. You know, I think it's it's more complicated today because I don't think you could say that the Trumpite right is not participating. Uh, actually, they're pretty active. Oh, yeah. You know, they're voting uh, and they are attending political rallies. 
and they are electing people to school boards and to state legislatures. Um, they're writing letters. They're posting on social media. I mean, it's in some ways uh, they are fulfilling those expectations of full citizenship in the political realm. And many of those people are not so well off that right. they are, um, you know, kind of burying themselves in consumption. Uh, so I, I, the situation today is maybe somewhat different. Um, you know, I, I don't know how consumerism would fit into the political mm -hmm. behavior that we're seeing from this growing and rather threatening political right. Uh, I think the more, probably the more powerful motivation there, sadly, is race. Yeah. And, well, Josh Hawley, senator from uh, Midwest, talked about masculinity. And I think mm -hmm. that that is a strategy, a well-thought-out, mm -hmm. unfortunately, strategy that uh, appeals to people. That's a different subject, one which I did a show on yeah. oh, a week or so ago. But, but I, go I ahead. That. So, kind of masculinity, white supremacy, these are, these are sadly... Um, you know, identities we thought we had buried long ago, but they're certainly back. Yeah, well, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, sometimes <laughs> that works, sometimes it does. And, and back to, uh, you know, the mid-20th century, of which I was a big part, or a small part. Anyway, one of the concrete results of the booming post-war economy was the private real estate market. Though people on the political and cultural right somehow insist that rugged individualism is real and there's no role for government. As you write, this explosion of private real estate market was made possible by a mixed economy, and I think that's really important, a mixed economy, a private enterprise bolstered by government subsidy. Some may have forgotten that there is a crucial role for government. Now, if one was a white male, there were various ways government could and did help Please explain that, you know, for those people who think, oh, I did it on my own. Right. Yeah, that is a very important point. Um, so if you were a veteran uh, and coming out of World War II, you had the benefits of the GI Bill. And one of those benefits was that you got a very low cost uh, VA mortgage. Uh, this, of course, was more true if you were white and male than if you were African-American and a female, because the way in which the government uh, channeled those resources in the GI Bill was not to hand them out sort of by check to individual veterans, but rather to back the mortgages uh, that private banks gave. So the banks were still in a position of making judgments about who qualified for a mortgage. And they tended to adapt, to adopt the, um, the, the what were called the, the, the map, the, 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 G, the redlining maps that were created yes. during the 1930s under the um, Homeowners Loan Corporation program. And those maps made very uh, detailed distinctions um, among, neighborhoods, yes. um, communities about what were considered to be the safest investments. And those investments were generally determined by the racial and class makeup 
um, an ethnic makeup of those communities. So a an inner city neighborhood that might have had um, many more, uh, minority residents would be downgraded. Um, a, resi- a neighborhood that had a lot of Jewish and Italian first and second generation Americans would be downgraded. The the people the communities that that got the highest uh, rankings tended to be upper class white neighborhoods and cities, and particularly the new suburban yes. communities that were booming all over America in metropolitan areas, and where new construction was going up um, in these new housing developments. So. Um, the, the federal government was very much involved then in privileging those uh, white, middle-class, suburban communities. Uh, there, there also was a, an, a, the FHA, FHA program, which gave resources to developers and contractors to build these communities, as well as insured mortgages from other people. Then don't forget that... Um, Starting in the post-war period, we began to really have um, mass income tax with more people paying than ever before. But there were privileges that homeowners got in that income tax structure, including the mortgage deduction. So if you owned a home, you got that benefit as well. So there were many ways. And I would also add to that the highway building that the federal government. Um, undertook with the National Housing Act in 1956 um, that opened up a lot of these kind of semi-rural farms and forests outside of cities for for housing development. So there were many ways that the federal government um, helped the private sector to prosper in this consumerist republic. And of course, you know, one of the hoped for goals in this period it seems was for uh, you know economic prosperity for all for more people and the one of the prime ways that that people can do better financially is uh, having invested in real estate and the value of the real estate going up but to a huge extent that market was just shut out to people of color it absolutely shut out. They couldn't do it. So now, you know, while white people have been able to, you know, buy a house for X amount of dollars and then sell it for more and then up, 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 they've been completely left out of that. And so the 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 picture, you know, that was sold to us of, of greater prosperity, more consumerism, you know, uh, rising tide, lifting all boats, ain't necessarily so. Exactly. And it, you know, really in some ways created more inequalities. Um, So the wealth differentials that we see today between white and minority, particularly African-American families, is often traceable back to home ownership, particularly the years, the decades where the asset of owning a home increased so much so that it's not just a question of, you know, your own wealth, but it's the wealth you you inherit from your parents um, so that, uh, you know, if a, if, if, a, if a, an estate includes the value of a home, the next generation is going to benefit. And then I would also point out that in this um, kind of segmentation of communities by 
particularly by social class and income, but also by race, we create new kinds of inequalities. So, for example, we pay and support schooling in this country, mostly by property taxes. And property taxes are decided and, and implemented on the local level. So the resources that exist within a particular community will determine how much gets spent on individual students and on that school system. So when you have this inequality by community, you're also um, creating new inequalities of opportunity for the future. So you know we know that a, a you know a better education. Uh, is rewarded with, you know, college entrance, with a better paying job and so forth. Uh, a poor education gets fewer rewards. So this is, you know, we really did, despite the, the, the sort of language and the promises of the Consumers Republic, my point is really that it fed many other kinds of inequalities. Yes, and I, I wonder about... I mean, the idea of a republic, I very much value republic. I assume that means of the people, republic. And it seems like by transforming it into a consumer's republic, it's kind of uh, really done damage to what a republic is, I think, supposed to be, what our uh, founders intended to be a republic. And as was Ben Franklin said, a republic, if you can keep it. And it's been more and more difficult to do that. And I, I just wonder how much of a detriment to a real republic uh, consumerism has proved to be. Your thoughts? Well, you know, historians fortunately don't have to uh, do counterfactuals. Uh, you know, if this had not happened, what what would have? Right. You know, I can only try to analyze what actually did happen. Um, you know, I guess my sense is that the society has benefited. I don't want to right. to say that's the case. Uh, people are certainly living better today than they did in the 1930s, 40s, and even the 50s. Um, not everybody. There's a lot of inequality. That would be the piece I would really focus on is the, the greater differentials in the way people are living. Um, but what I guess would have been uh, the, the, the better way of controlling the impact of the consumer's republic and the inequalities that we've just been discussing would have been to keep investing at the same time into stronger public goods and a public sector where there was regulation there was higher taxation to try to create some greater uh equality where there were um you know government funded benefits like schooling. Uh, federal government has rarely invested much in schools. Um, and we see, you know, many state universities being cut like crazy and oh, having yeah. to private sector donations instead. So my, I guess, counterfactual would be, what if we had had the consumer's republic, but we put as much emphasis on the republic as the consumer side and, you know, invested as a society in the good of the of all rather than seeing it as you know an individual pursuit yeah it seems like a lot of people forget that this is you know unlike the old soviet union or other uh, you know authoritarian governments a mixed economy where where capitalism works with the republic fine but where it doesn't meet the needs 
the government is there to do things. And it seems like it's gotten kind of out of balance, uh, I must say. And w- one of the things that changed, you know, in the 60s and 70s was uh, commercialization, what you call a commercialization and privatization of public space. And there used to be the village green, you know, a place where people could meet and speak. And that was a place where different viewpoints could have their uh, their platform. And so there's a this proliferation of regional shopping centers. So a private space dedicated to mass consumption has become a stand-in for a public center of community life. Kids hang out there. There's no more village green. Of course, the population is quite a bit bigger. Shopping centers have no res- responsibility to allow free speech, unlike the village green. How do the commitments to commerce and community come into conflict using the uh, shopping centers as uh, an example? Um, yeah, I'm glad you raised that. I mean, it's a good example. I have a chapter about the, the emergence of shopping malls as sort of the public space of these new suburban communities. Um, and it's a gradual process. It's not like, you know, Macy's decided we're going to create a, a privatized public space when it, you know, was the uh, the anchor store and a shopping center, you know, in suburban New Jersey. Um, what happened was people were middle class people, white people, middle, you know, with incomes that were gave them consumer capacity, were moving out into suburban areas and um Many of the uh, commercial entities, like department stores, saw uh, the potential there to uh, to tap that market, and and so in fact they followed the money. They followed those consumers, um, developing shopping centers. Quite gradually, they start as open air shopping centers. Ultimately, become enclosed malls, um, and and it's a process where. In many of these communities, that shopping center was the only public space. It was basically just housing developments. And there were some market towns, markets, not really even cities that were there, but were really um, not as attractive to these new residents as the the old downtown. But here now, their favorite department store has moved out within a, you know, easy drive away. So they emerge as, you know, kind of uh, commercial centers. And then to kind of to, to attract people, many of those shopping centers start promoting uh, community events. They have concerts. They have activities for children. Santa Claus is there. You know, so they try to insert themselves into social life. And then inevitably, particularly in the 60s, um, there are confrontations with people who would who tried to do the things they would have done on the in the public square on the public street and sidewalk in the city they have labor unions might have um you know boycotts and you know protests uh against an employer who was discriminating or treating them unfairly uh anti-war protests um are taken to the shopping center racial um, you know, uh, contestations and so forth. So 
all of a sudden, a space that was really all about consumption starts to become more like the downtown than those private interests might like. And so they start imposing restrictions on it. It actually makes its way, and I write about this in the book, all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruling is that this should be a state-by-state decision. So there is variation among states, but in most states, shopping centers are viewed as private property. Um, And it does vary how much public activity and political activity can happen. But in general, they have private police forces. They are viewed as private property. And the kind of freedom of speech that we expect in the public square does not happen in the shopping mall. So it hasn't had a particularly positive effect on a... uh that aspect of a republic, the the ability to have a a public sphere. The government is not doing it. They're not investing in public spheres anywhere near as much as many of us would like. So that's having to substitute for it. And you're right. I mean, it's private property. They have a legal right to restrict free speech, and they do. Right now, the situation is slightly different uh, in the context of the pandemic, where uh, and this really began before the before COVID, that shopping malls were really losing patronage as e-commerce was growing. Right. So today, I think we're in even a more complex situation where people aren't even consuming in public. They are doing it in the privacy of their own homes. And that brings its own complications yeah. and isolations that, you know, people are not actually even in semi-public spaces like shopping malls. They are doing their consuming in private. It seems like the isolation is is a big problem. And, you know, c- consumerism is self-perpetuating. Whether we go places or, or you know, have it delivered to us now, uh, buying, the reality, I think, is that buying more stuff does not fill any of the hole in our lives. We keep buying more, 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 more. But it doesn't fulfill us. Does the unfulfilling process which is involved serve to take the place of connecting with our neighbors, feeling part of something? Your thoughts on that isolation? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the bigger dilemma I guess I'm struggling with today is the tension between the necessity in our economy of people continuing to consume when 70% of the GDP is actually dependent on consumption and the environmental degradation we know that is, has come and is coming and will continue to come from that overconsumption. There, I think we have a really serious dilemma for our society. Uh, and I don't know how we're going to solve it. Well, I think more and more people are getting the sense, maybe not consciously, but the you know this is it. This is the only planet there is. So the environment itself has been is now our common ground, and there are you know nobody wants to give up their cool stuff. I like stuff too, and and but advertisers lately have come to realize that they need to sell the environmentally responsible aspects of their products. The hurdles are set by producers, the industrialists are quite real against substantive, you know, real environmental action. I wonder about the rise in uh, green consciousness, even though 
you know, many, uh, you know, real hardcore environmentalists call it greenwashing, and it kind of is. But do you think the rise in green consciousness is real and may yet make a significant impact on our consumer republic? Kind of rein it back in. Well, it's a good point. Um, I, I think it is happening. I think consumers are becoming a lot more conscious of it. But I guess I don't quite trust the private sector to truly solve the problem. I feel like, you know, they may advertise ways in which a product is green. Uh, they may, in fact, rein in some of the greatest abuses. But other things will happen until we actually regulate it. Uh, I don't see a great change. Um, and I do think that states are making regulations that are having an impact. For example, my husband went the other day to buy some light bulbs. He went to the hardware store and was thinking that he wanted a, you know, an old fashioned kind of light bulb. Right. And all they had were lead bulbs. Right. And he asked about it and they said, well, starting January 1, the state of Massachusetts is requiring that th this is all we sell. We had to get clear our shelves and this is, a, is what we're selling and it should work in, in, in any electrical, uh, you know, fixture that you have. And, you know, it, so it is happening in some places, but worry, it worries me that it might be happening in Massachusetts and California, but maybe mm. not mm. some other states shall remain nameless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, low-density population states. We get it. The flyover states you know, yeah, right. we're talking about. Well, I'm, I'm wonder I always like to have some degree of optimism here. And, you know, there is uh, the Build Back Better program, which is struggling to survive. And, you know, public works jobs, people, the whole community is involved. And everyone's health and wellness is actually important to everyone else. In a consumer republic, you're on your own. But we do have this isolation. And, and, you know, people ask, instead of what's best for my community or America, am I getting a good deal? And as you mentioned, there was a, this consumer movement in the 60s and 70s. Could it be that that sentiment, which does remain coupled with the urgency of literally saving the planet, may bring adequate reform to the consumer republic. I mean, there are people who are, you know, extreme saying, oh, capitalism is bad, throw it away, it ain't going to work, it causes pollution. That's just not realistic. But, I, you know, it's there. there is, it seems to be a slowly emerging consciousness. And, I, you know, I wonder about, you know, the role of government, as you talk about being essential to have a real republic. What's your sense of any degree of optimism, dare I ask? Well, you know, I think it's going to be um, a reverse process from the way in which the Consumers Republic was uh, established in that that was pretty top down. Um, I think this will probably be bottom up, that it may be uh, localities, um, then states. Uh, there will be, you know, federalism has its problems, but it also has some benefits in that it brings government closer to some populations. I don't have as much confidence in the federal government as I once did mm -hmm. to make changes, just looking at Congress and how stuck they are and how unable they are to, to really enact uh, progressive uh, you know, actions and laws that, uh, and then there's, there's the Supreme Court 
even worse. So, um, you know, I think it's going to take organizing at the local level. And maybe that is ultimately the best strategy for getting people out of their private spaces and into uh, some larger community space, because people can picture that and participate in that better when it is more local than when it is abstracted and far away. Well, I do think you're right, and many solutions can come at the municipal level. I've been surprised at how often uh, uh, municipalities can get involved and take charge of situations. It, it, it ain't a bad thing. Well, this has been an interesting discussion, and maybe, you know, we, we, I think a lot of people have to, there's a lot of thought that has to go into this, that uh, how we can uh, really reform the situation. We're not going to do away with all our cool stuff, but we need to make it more uh, uh, beneficial to more people and uh, less degrading to the planet. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Cohen, uh, Howard Munford Jones, Professor of American Studies and American at the Department of History at Harvard University. Uh, her book is called A Consumer's Republic, The Mass Consumption in Post-War America, and her new one should be interesting, uh, Saving America's Cities, um, Ed Logue and the Struggle to Renew Urban America in the Suburban Age. There are things we can do. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Bert. I enjoyed it. People say we got it made. Don't they know we're so afraid? We were afraid to be alone Everybody got to have a home Solution Just a boy and a little girl Trying to change the whole Just a little town Everybody trying to put us down The sun will never disappear But the 
I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, subscribe. Don't miss a single one on the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.